Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Voices. Today, I have Nitsiki Bayela with me from South Africa. She has the great honor of being the first black female winemaker in South Africa in 2004. She's received many awards throughout her career, including the Diversity and Transformation Award for her pioneering work in the industry in South Africa. That that accolade celebrated her role sort of paving the way for others by eliminating barriers and setting an example and inspiring young people, contributing to knowledge that, that people can use to enter the wine industry and having an overall very positive and powerful influence on the image of the South African wine industry. So welcome, Nitsiki. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. As I said, you are widely recognized as the very first black female winemaker in South Africa. That's quite a bit of something to carry on your shoulders. Your path to coming into wine wasn't that obvious. I, I know you had never tasted wine before you were offered a scholarship to study winemaking at Stellenbosch University. What made you decide to accept that scholarship and go into winemaking? I think it wasn't really about winemaking per se that made me take the scholarship. It was a need to change my life. It was a need to do something. And so when the scholarship came and it said winemaking, I was like, I'll take it because I wanted to change my life. I wanted to study. Those were the key things that I wanted. The fact that it came is in winemaking form, it, for me, it wasn't really the reason for choosing it, but it was the, the reason was to change my life. What were you doing before the scholarship came along? So I finished my trick and as I started applying for bursaries, I was, but all the bursaries I was applying for, I was getting obviously the, the very famous letters coming back saying we regret. So I got a job. I worked for a year as a domestic worker. So when I called, got called at school, I was already working as a domestic worker. So I worked for a year and then I got this opportunity to apply for this scholarship. And then I did that. When was that? Because it's you're you're younger than I am, so this is not in the distant past. <laughs> I don't know. That was in nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight. Wow. Yeah. So very recently. Very recently. Yeah. So I worked in. I was working in nineteen ninety eight, and then um, I got the scholarship to come to Stellenbosch. Then a, a year after. That's that's incredible. How was it learning about wine literally from sort of ground zero? I think it wasn't really about wine. It was learning in Afrikaans. That was the tricky part. It was learning in a different culture. It was being in a different environment, which doesn't look like the environment I grew up in, which doesn't feel like the environment I grew up in, and culturally and in all aspects of it. So it was that that basically was more challenging but for me it was one of those to say no matter what comes my way i need to get this degree i need to pass i need to i need to succeed in what i'm doing that drive has clearly worked very well for you and i'm sure there are many other people who have fallen at that hurdle you know we we're all very aware of sort of very long history of extreme prejudice against black people in south africa so Going into Stellenbosch, were, were there other black students in your class? There were. I think in our class, probably about 
Well, we were like a handful really in our class. We were a handful of black people, but the rest, obviously, yeah, it was white students. And I think also one of the things that was even making it difficult, because as we're the handful of black students and the language barrier, because we don't understand the language, it was making it tricky. I think tricky is probably uh, not strong enough of a word. It sounds like it was incredibly daunting. (laughs) (laughs) Must have been going to university is daunting enough, but to go, uh, you know, to a place where no one looks like you and everyone speaks another language is that's incredibly brave. So I, I get that feeling of how driven you were to do something that must have been unbelievably hard at the time. Yes, no, it, it was really hard. I don't, I, I wouldn't, uh, and, and, and I get when you say the word that I use is really very light for actually what it was. I guess probably just the choice of words. But also I think while I was studying, there were tears, there were moments of tears, there were moments of crying. And I think one thing I'm grateful for is that not even once did I have a thought of saying, I'm going to throw my throw a towel. Again, just the strength of your drive. Did, were, you, were you welcomed by teachers, by classmates? Did they, did they support you? Or was that another part of the uphill battle in this quote-unquote tricky situation? There was another battle. I'll say this. When it comes to students, you know, the lecturer will try to speak English in class because trying to accommodate us who didn't understand Africans and the students will make noise and saying it's an Africans university, you're not going to do that, you know. So um, there was that. And it was very interesting that in our final year, only in our final year really that we, we started bonding and they will be the one saying to the lecturer, there are English speakers here. So it was, but it was right at the end. So during the process where of the couple of years, it was really hard. So even if the lecturer would want to assist, so much so that we ended up had to have extra classes. You know, you you go to class and then you ask for extra classes. We had to get tutors. The lecturers will get will appoint like a a master's student or a PhD student to be a tutor so that we've got a second class after class. So essentially you had to do everything twice. I can't imagine how hard that must have been. And and it's it's still, I find it really offensive that this was only basically 20 years ago, um, not not long ago at all. So, yeah. well, did who was your support system, Nitsiki? I mean, it sounds like, as you said, there wasn't a lot of bonding happening until the end of your studies. Who did you look to as a, as a mentor and a support? <laughs> I think it's it's now as an adult that I'm realizing the importance of the strength of, of the foundation. I had my grandmother when she was alive. She was one person. I knew that when I go home, I'm fetching my strength to go and fight the battle. Because, it, it, you know, when it came to a point where you realized, you know, what, being outside of home or outside of comfort, that's your battlefield. So going home, I'll come back. My, my grandmother is very spiritual. So I'll get home and then when I leave and she'll pray and then I'll feel like, you know what, I can do anything now. And then I'll go back to university and start the battle, you know. So there was that. And also knowing that I've got sisters, I've got family and then friends. So those were the people where, because I feel it's um, it, it's the community that you need as a person to, to go cry to when the situation gets tough. People are going to say... We know it's hard, but we know you can do it. Absolutely. You know, it's hard, but we are here. 
you know. They might not be there for your books, but they are there. You know they are there. I used to call one of my sisters who was uh, based in Durban, and I would call her crying. I remember the first time I called her, I said, I dreamt I had failed and the university kicked me out. And I was crying, and she was like, no, it was a dream. It's because you're, you're stressing. And I couldn't say that. I was, I was just so failing, university kicked me out. That's all I could see. So, and that drove me to say, to find out actually what other opportunities are there or other help that is there. And I found out that actually there was a student counseling um, on campus. So I had to attend that to have to go to this, to, to counseling to say, look, I've got issues here. This is going to be, this is a battle. This is a struggle. I'm going to fail. And, you know, to ex- explain everything that I'm going to be kicked out, but I don't, I can't go back home because I'm going back to nothing. So I need to make it work here. So you guys are going to make it, help me make it work. I think that's an incredible image to have that you you had to fight. You had to become a warrior because if you lost university, you were going back to nothing. I don't think many people experience that. I, I think it's, yeah, it's one of those things that knowing and understanding that if I go back to nothing, then what? So I have to make it work. And um, I think that was one of the things that the, one of the therapists ended up saying, she's like, looks like you feel like everything has to be. And I'm like, yes, it has to be. She's like, but you need to be gentle with it. I was like, no, I have to pass. Like, I think it's difficult to, to have therapy with somebody who's never been in your shoes and can't possibly understand your situation. That's a thing. That's a thing. I think actually you'll be hitting the nail on the head there when you say a person who hasn't been in the situation because they don't understand why you being so adamant that it must be like that, you know. So that was that. And so until they had said, okay, fine, if you fail, we're going to, because you're attending therapy, we'll write a letter, the university will not kick you out. And I was like, and then that basically gave me a sort of like, okay, I've got a backup plan. A good safety net. Yes, I've got a safety net now. Now I can put all my energy into trying to figure out this thing. And, and luckily I was really, yeah, and luckily I passed my first year, so. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely, and it worked because you graduated, which was, you know, I think probably a huge milestone, not only for you, but probably everyone in your family who was rooting for you. Yes, yes. And and you went on to work for Stella Kaya. Yes. That's, that in itself is a huge achievement. How, how did you get from university to Stella Kaya? So I had applied, because when I was a student, I was working part-time for one of the wineries. I worked for Delheim Wines, tasting room, working in the vineyards, working basically everywhere because I needed to understand the course that I'm doing because I had no idea also, because I had no idea of wine. So that is where I learned about wine as a student. And so when I finished my studies, I started applying for jobs. So looking for a winemaking job or a viticultural job. And luckily when I applied at Stelekaya, when they called me for an interview and they hired me. So it was like one of those that they saw what they wanted and it happened to be a kind of a place I was looking for myself because I knew when I was studying that when I got out to work, I want to work in a small company so that I can learn about all the aspects of the business because at some point I want to start my own business. So I was clear. Stelikaya was, was a pretty young vineyard when you started there. I mean, how, yes. How did you find that experience? It's so useful getting hands-on experience. I think the value of that continues to be underrated how important it is, particularly in the wine industry. Nothing else is as valuable as hands-on experience. Absolutely. How, how, how did it go at Stelakaya? Were your colleagues accepting of you coming in there? How, you know, what did you learn? How did you make it work for you? So Stelakaya was a small company. We were still small, but it was like, you know, we was just starting. 
And I remember, because I had a consultant uh, who was a previous winemaker, and the accounts lady was the one basically holding my hand to say, okay, fine. When you need to order bottles, this is where you're going to get your bottles, you know, just to give me directions. And I remember there was Mia Mostert. She was, she was amazing. And the seller supervisor was the one actually, again, who was holding my hand in the cellar to say, okay, we've got barrels here, we've got this there, you know, just to get that. And also for me getting at the door with a lesson that one of my mothers taught me, and she had said to me, know that as you go to that company, that everyone you're finding there, they know better than you because they've been with the company. So everyone in that company is going to teach you. It does not matter whether you're going to come in as their supervisor, their manager, whatever, but the bottom line is they know better than you. That's such wise advice. I think a lot of people tend to believe that they they know more than they do. And, and having that sense of humility is a great way to learn because people will will talk to you more and be more open to you if you're willing to be transparent about what you don't know. Yeah. And so when, when I got there, I remember Nicholas Adonis, he was the one basically teaching me. And his wife who was working in the kitchen and cleaning, we call her Ansara. She used to, so she was treating me like one of her kids. Like lunchtime, because it's harvest, I'm always running around. And she would come with coffee and a toasted sandwich because we had food at work. And she would literally get in, put the cup and put the sandwich on the table and close the door and stop and said, you're going to sit and eat. And I'd be like, but I need to. And she goes, I said, sit and eat. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very good mother qualities. And then I'll just sit down and eat. (laughs) It was so much fun. Yeah, it was nice. It was nice. It was more like it was family. You know, it was having family at work. Well, and I think you've always relied on on a family system. So finding a family at work is so incredibly helpful. And you were very, very successful there. As I said, you were named the first black female winemaker in South Africa in 2004. And then you won a gold medal for your first red wine. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, yes. Uh, (laughs) That was a, a Cape Cross. It was a Cape Blend. Uh, Pinotage Cab and, uh, and Merlot. So one, I think one thing I remember most about that was when we the awards, it was Michelangelo, International Wine Awards. So when the awards was announced, it was very interesting that in the room at the event, I remember clearly there were two black people. It was me and Tariro Masaidi, who is a winemaker, it's a guy from his from Zim, but he was making wine for, I think at that time, one of the wineries. So it was the two of us as black people, and then the rest of the black people were the waiters and waitresses. It must have been like being at university all over again. Absolutely. And I think what that evening touched me because what happened is when the awards were being announced and when they called the Stelikaya Cape Cross the waiters and waitresses screamed with excitement. And I was like, I was like, oh my God, they know me. Like, it is, yeah. That must have been so self-affirming. That's an amazing moment. It was a moving moment. And I was like, oh my God, they know me. That's incredible. That's, uh, and I'm sure you inspired that entire room. And so it was like, you know, so, but, so that moment of coming in thinking, we're only two people here, two black people in this whole room that's full of people in the industry to actually say, no, we're not only two. Yes, these ones are here to work, but at the same time, you know, they are part of this. So it was really nice. 
just that's incredible i i love the image of that i i there must be a photograph somewhere that sounds like an amazing moment you you went on you clearly thrived with your uh, success in 2009 you were named South Africa's Woman Winemaker of the Year. Now, they, they really knew who you were by then. Were, were you surprised by the award? Well, I think because the award was based on submitting the wines, tasting blind. And so my wine, it was a 2006 Cabernet that won, that got me that medal or that award. So, yeah, it was, it was very, it was exciting. It was exciting. I was, actually, we were looking at that, we were reflecting on that last year because I got that award and it was like a milestone at that moment. And it was the people actually were giving the award were still part of the Michelangelo. It was the Michelangelo Award. And last year, when Umsasane 2018 got a trophy at Michelangelo, it was like, oh my goodness. You've come full circle the whole way. Yes, yes. Well, it I, I'm just, I'm curious, so it, the title you won was South Africa's Woman Winemaker of the Year. Would you rather just be Winemaker of the Year? Um, what, do you, what do you think about the woman distinction? Well, I feel everything's got its space. I feel everything, it has its space. There was a woman winemaker competition. It ran its course. And I think in general, obviously, as winemakers, we're all winemakers, whether you're a woman or a man. We're all winemakers. We all studied the same thing, all basically peddling on the same path. The only difference, I think, as women, we know that it's been a journey. So as women, we're trying to find a place and space and trying to, to, to find a way. So that's why that probably that award was created, to actually find a way in a space. So it ran its course. Well, yeah. You, you've always said you, you see the potential of, of Black South Africans because white winemakers weren't tapping into that. This clearly is, is something you've been working on for a long time, the breaking down these barriers. Yes, I think one of the things that it's, you know, when someone presents something to you, it's different. They'll present it from their own perspective. They'll present something to you from their own understanding. But how much more when someone is presenting something to you in their own perspective and you find that that actually I relate because that's where I'm from and that's where I am or that's where I'm, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just that way of understanding. And for me, when it comes to the wine industry, talking about wines, talking about food, is that when we talk about food and food pairing, we still, still talk about the Western culture. And as black people, the food we eat, our daily food, we don't eat well, some people now are eating obviously pastas and all those as their daily food. They have steaks and stuff. But we we eat dumplings, we eat tripe, we eat, you know, there's certain foods that is sort of like our foundation that we grew up eating, that we like eating, that sometimes it's it's like example, for me, I cannot go for a long time without having bap. It drives me nuts. I just, I feel like I'm getting weak. I feel like, so I have to have it. I, I know. And people go, no, but perhaps make you do this. I'm like, no, like it hurts. I have to have it. I love that. I, I love that. And and taking cultures that haven't been traditionally linked with wine and taking that food that means so much to you. I think we all have a food item that means so much to us and, and working on how to how to pair that's it's so exciting when that happens because as you said you know traditional western food you know i grew up in in midwestern ohio i didn't know anything about french food or anything like that so you know when i got into wine learning to pair 
traditional wines with food that that no one ever talked about pairing with wine um spicy food african food you know all kinds of things it's really exciting and i think it it includes more people yes so i i think for now when we when especially when i do wine tastings and talking to people about the flavors or the characters that i'm picking up on the wine actually to talk about characters that i grew up with talking about things that we're eating and things that people don't have to go out there and go look for things that are written on the back labels. But look at what you have in your fridge. Cook the food that you normally cook and see if it works. Just an example, I remember at some point when I was working at Stilikai, I had tasted, I tasted Merlot and I love making chicken curry. I use masala because my grandmother, that's what she used to do. And so I'll make my dumpling, it would be chicken dumplings, but I use masala as the curry powder that I use. And so I had this masala chicken curry and I tasted it with Merlot. Auntie, one of the things is people will say red wine and curry run for your life, right? You know, and then I, I made that and I remember it was at night. I called my colleague at night and I'm like, you won't believe what just happened. And she goes, and I'm like, I'm having murder and chicken curry and it's the bomb. It's like, it's amazing. It was till today, that is one pairing that it happened just not because I said, oh, I want to pair this. I was like, I want to, I'm cooking, I feel like eating this and I'm going to make myself, you know, chicken curry and oh, I'm going to open a bottle of wine. And that's what I did. I absolutely love that. That's, that's basically the scene in my kitchen every night. <laughs> I eat what I want to eat and whatever in the house, in the wine rack, uh, I have to make it work. So I absolutely love that story. That's fantastic. And it, it is amazing how, you know, really humble food and food we make at home, food that touches our hearts. You know, it, not only does it make you want to call your colleague and say, hey, this is the best, but it is fun to play with it and fun to play with the wine. So uh, I love that. And I'm, I'm going to roll that into the fact that you're clearly having fun in your career and you started your own winery in 2017. Yes. And I believe the name of the winery, Aslina, is your grandmother's name. Is that correct? Yes. I named the company after my grandmother in honor of her because she played a big role and I still feel she's playing a big role in my life even today spiritually. And so, yeah, for me, it was important to pay tribute to, to the great person in my life. That's lovely. I, I'm so happy for that. I'm sure she is too. But I... I have read the story and you didn't even have a vineyard when you started this winery. What, what were you doing? So <laughs> um, I think one of the things is I like the fact that in South Africa, unlike probably in France, in South Africa, you can have a wine company without having a winery, without having a, a vineyard or anything. So the way of starting it was basically to rent a cellar space from those who've got cellars, buy grapes from those who've got vineyards, and make the wine. So yeah. Incredible. So you got to pick and choose your grapes and and you got to use the cellar space that somebody else had invested all their money in and you just all you had to do was rent it and show up, which is very useful. Yes, yes. I think Did people think you were crazy? It sounds like a risk. No, it's 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 not because most wine actually most winemakers, most winemakers who starting their own brands that's what they do. Right. I, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I know it's a common practice in South Africa. It is a common practice. How did it go dealing with the grape growers and, and figuring out whose grapes to buy? Well, I think, again, working at Stelekaya gave me all that experience and helped me to build those relationships. 
that when I finished, it wasn't a matter of like starting from scratch. It was a matter of going to the people I know that do, do you have any extra grapes? I want this, I would like that block, I would like this, and I would like that. Ah, perfect. So it's basically just going on through the, with the people that I've been working with before and also building new relationships and getting new suppliers of grapes. So, yeah. You must have built a, a really strong network to be able to start that. Were you on your own? Well, if you're saying on your, my own financially and all that, yes. <laughs> That's the question. This is another, I, I love how, how humble you are about these enormous achievements that you've made. Another tricky situation, but you've been really successful with it. I'm, I'm so impressed. It's been sort of, well, five years now. What, what grapes are you growing? What wines are you making? So we've got a... We've got a Cabernet Sauvignon, we've got a Bordeaux blend called Umsasane. Umsasane being the Akasha tree in Isizulu. But also I use that name because it's my grandmother's nickname. So that's our Bordeaux blend. Um, and then we've got a Sauvignon Blanc and a Chardonnay. And this past year, December, November, December, we launched the Skin Contact Chenin Blanc. Oh, wow. Tell me a bit about that one. That one, since I started working... I've always, I was always curious what happened when you ferment the white wine on skin. Like I was just always curious about that. I love the texture that you get from doing that. I love the texture. And when I remember I was speaking to Mika Bulmash in the US, my importer, at some point, and I said to her, you know what? I'm always curious about this. That is the one I want, I'll make one day. And she goes, oh, there are wines like that. And I was like, really? And she goes, we're going to go buy those wines. And so we started, like, literally, we went all out and just getting different bottles and tasting those wines. And because I already had in my mind how I was seeing it coming out and how it should taste and all that. So when I was making it last year for the first time, I already had this thing in my mind. And the excitement when I tasted it, well, at the beginning, obviously, after fermentation and going through the process, and I'm like, there's this something missing, there's this, but at the end of it, yeah, it was amazing. That's incredible. Are, so are you exporting? Can I can I find this wine in Italy or am I going to have to sit here and be sad? Unfortunately, not in Italy, but it is available in Germany. And actually, Germany is only going to ship it now because when we were shipping for them last year, October, the wine wasn't ready. It was it just been bottled, so it wasn't labeled. Right. Well, if any of my Italian importer friends are listening to this podcast, they, they should get in contact with you because that sounds like fascinating wine. Yes, yeah, so that, it is amazing. So, so now this is the one of the this one of the things in this in the, in the at the office is that my my colleagues they said they're gonna need to hide the shining from me because because it looks like anything I'm th- like I'm getting every excuse to open a bottle. <laughs> And so we were applying, there was this application I was doing in the U.S. for the Shannon to be part of, because for everyone, we have to apply for individually. So when it's been a while, we started applying for this in November last year. So when I got the approval yesterday, and I was so excited, and then I had only one bottle at home, and I opened it. So I tell them about it. They're like, you see the reason that we need to hide the Shannon from you? <laughs> because it, like, it looks like whenever I want to open a bottle, I'm just now... It used to be like when I want to open a bottle, I'll be like, oh, I'll open a cab or because I believe Umsasan is the one that I need to, I said to them, I need to go with respect to them as planned when I have to open Umsasan. It's like I have to have the whole ceremonial issue with, around the wine. But with Shannon, it's like, I want to open a bottle now. Can you try another one? So, yeah. 
<laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm so happy to be talking to you today. I didn't realize you got the approval yesterday. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. So you'll be exporting to the States? Yeah, we have been exporting to the States, but this was specifically for Texas. Because New York, the East Coast, they already received their Shannon, and they've been, they've been seeing people posting their bottle. So I was like, oops, so yeah. You definitely can't open a bottle every time you see someone posting or you won't have anything left. <laughs> yeah, and for, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you've been working pretty much nonstop, you know, battling through all of this to get to this successful point for sort of the past 20 years. But you've still found time to be a board member for Pinotage Youth Development Academy and, and other things along those lines. Tell me, what, what's it like working with the academy? What are you doing with them? So at the academy, basically, we are training young people through the value chain of the wine industry. Uh, these are the 18 to 25-year-olds. So they get to the academy, get trained, and we do job placements within the industry and the hospitality. But we're trying to expand that. But for me, as being the board member, what I like the most is I see myself in the students and... I see the growth. I see them. It, it's always exciting when I see them when they're starting at the beginning of the year. Those when it's there, when they start, and then you see the person at the end, how they have grown and how they have changed and how they have developed because they already have the talent. It's just they need that extra step just to help them unleash themselves and become the best people they they are. That's beautiful. So you're you're essentially providing all the support and mentorship that you needed when you were young to a whole new generation of winemakers. That's that's really beautiful. And again, it's it's admirable, but it's more than that. It's so proactive, you know, really taking your experience and turning it into action for other people is I think something that can't be, you know, sort of celebrated enough. You should open Shannon for that, definitely. <laughs> So my my one last thing that I have to say, because I'm so impressed, in 2017, Forbes magazine named you one of the top 20 most innovative women in food and drinks. I mean, where are you going to go from here? What what are you innovating with now at Aslina? What's coming next? Well, I think now that we've got the Shannon that I've always wanted, or let's say skin contact white one that I've always wanted, one of the things we're trying to work on now is to get our own facility other than renting. Our growth is now based on us growing to be able to get our own facility. Right, right. And do you have dreams of, of your own vineyard? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited about this. It's one step at a time. See, so started in the market one step at a time. So that's where we're basically heading. That's, that's incredible. Those are good goals. And from the sounds of this story, I'm sure you're going to smash them. I'm going to keep in touch with you. But before I let you go, because this is, of course, Italian wine podcast, I want to ask you, I always ask, especially my winemakers, what's your favorite Italian wine? I love Sangiovese. The reason I love Sangiovese is when I was working at Stelicaia, I was making Sangiovese. And every time I smell the wine, it always took me back to my childhood. It always took me back to my, to my grounding. You know, it's like, you know, when you walk in, in a forest and it's been hot and that drizzle and then that earthy smell. That is a perfect description of Sangiovese. That's great. So for me, it's like, because I love nature. So that smell, it just, it, you know, it's like I'll smell it and it's like I can just sink myself in it. So, yeah. Well, I'm going to invite you to come and visit me in Italy and, and we'll go into the into the forest with our bottle of Sangiovese and the Shannon and, and we can compare. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. No, I, I love Sangiovese. Yeah.
Oh, well, this has been a great conversation. I, I can't thank you enough for being so open about all the things that you have climbed over, worked around, and, and knocked out of your way to get where you are. I'm, I'm utterly impressed, and I'm desperate to try that wine. Thank you so much for your honesty and for sharing some laughs with me today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I, I wish you all the most success for all the upcoming things. I'm going to keep my eye on you, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will too. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. You're welcome. Fine, Atiki. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and remember to tune in next Wednesday when I'll be chatting with another fascinating guest. Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with a daily show. Tune in every day and discover all our different shows. You can find us at italianwinepodcast.com, SoundCloud, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you get your pods. guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.